Welcome to episode 10 of the ABA and PT podcast, where I'm delighted to introduce you to Dr. Carl Koenig. If you're interested in how it all began, there is no one closer to the standard acceleration chart than Dr. Koenig, and somehow I convinced him to come and talk to me, and what an absolute gift that was. You might recognize his name as one of the authors alongside Og Lindsley and Hank Pennypacker of the Handbook of the Standard Acceleration Chart, which is how I first heard his name. But what you're about to hear is his incredible journey and how he came to precision teaching and to learn his enormous contribution and dedication to the field. You get a huge treat in the resources to this podcast as Carl kindly sent me his brief biography as he reminisces about his time with Og and the early days of precision teaching. You won't meet a humbler guy than Carl because he was instrumental not just in the formation of the standard acceleration chart, but it was his dissertation that undercovered the fundamental principle that behaviours multiply. A link to this dissertation is contained in the show notes, and in case he doesn't want to claim credit for that contribution, I have it from a good authority that Ogden himself accredited that to Carl. Having met Ogden Lindsley at a seminar, he was so impacted by him, he uprooted his life and moved to Kansas through the six-foot-high cornfields and on a journey he couldn't have imagined. He was instrumental in trialling and using the behaviour chart, as it was then, that later became the standard acceleration chart. And he spent more than a decade of his life working alongside Ogden through the highs and lows of shaping precision teaching. He was even there when Ogden first coined the term precision teaching. You get a sense of the extreme frustration that Og and Carl experienced regarding the state of technology at the time, and that Og's goals for the science were well ahead of technological capability, despite Carl's and Og's best efforts. You'll hear the story of the behaviour bank and Og's dreams to everyone to benefit from discoveries of the chart, and how hard Carl worked to find a way to capture and make available those learnings for chart users. You get the feeling that they were so close to a, a world-changing technology. But now with technology more readily able to digitally capture information and analyse it, Carl hasn't given up on the chart, fulfilling Og's, his and many others' dreams for a better world through precision teaching. This podcast is one of the great honours of my life. I'm indebted to Carl to let me bring you his story, a humble, passionate and inspirational human living treasure that gave his all for the science. Listeners will have access to his story, my time with Ogden and Precision Teaching Reminisces. Please enjoy. Well, this is beyond a privilege to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Carl Koenig. You know, sometimes in life, get brave and you just ask and uh, you don't expect to get a yes, but I emailed Carl about a month ago and asked him if he would come on the podcast. And I got a very quick response back to say yes. And as a result, you're on the podcast with us today. Welcome. Thank you. And thank you so much for being thank here. You. It's nice to be with you. <laughs> Tell us where you are. Your background looks like you're in uh, the Bahamas, but where are you living now? I live in Sarasota, Florida. So this is a very appropriate background. <laughs> if I look out my window, I can see sort of uh, a scene like that. Very, very nice. I have not been to Florida, but I, um, I plan on coming very soon. Tell us, what were your early beginnings? Like, where did you grow up and, and what sort of family did you grow up in? I grew up in Michigan, in the suburbs of Detroit. I had uh, siblings, three. I was the oldest. Uh, my father was a tool and die maker. He worked lots of hours. He, uh, he was a 60-hour-a-week kind of guy and uh, started his own business at the age of 50. And I was kind of proud of him for that because that was something he had been a, a shop foreman for other people for a lot of years, but decided to do, do it himself. He's quite successful at it. Right. And so I lived, I lived kind of a leave, leave it to beaver 
childhood, if that if that uh, phrase has any meaning for you. It actually does. Yeah. And uh, it was a nice community. Then when I, I, I was the first one to leave the family and go away to college, I didn't go very far. I went to Wayne State University down in the city. It was in Detroit. Yeah. A lot of people don't know about Wayne State. It happened at that, it, at that time. It had, and this was in the early 60s, it had about 48,000 students. So it was like the fourth or fifth largest in the country. Yeah. Uh, I was fortunate when I went there, I went as a math major and I got kind of bored after differential equations and decided to try to do something in the psychology world. And I looked at that for a while and decided I didn't want to be a tester. Uh, so I got into, the, I thought the way to apply psychological principles to help people was special education. And I ran into a guy named John Lee. And John was an older man at that time. But he was one of, he, was an, he had been an advisor to Franklin Roosevelt, uh, educational advisor. And he was one of the 10 people who started Easter Seals. So he chipped in a dollar. Right. And that group of 10 started Easter Seals. So he had quite a history. Right. He got me uh, into the program and set up an internship at a place called Lafayette Clinic, which was a mental facility in the city. And I did an internship there. And that's where I kind of started getting into some trouble because things that made sense to me was told I couldn't do. Yeah. And as a young man, you don't want to hear that. So you kind of rebel, and I did. Uh, <laughs> I told you the story. I had a, a young, I had a couple of interesting kids. One was a 16 year old boy who cut up his girlfriend with an axe, and the other was a six year, six year old arsonist. Wow. Probably some sexual problems yeah. in the family with that one, but. He was an interesting little kid. He, he loved math and didn't like to read. Was he living at the institution? Yes, it was a live-in institution. Wow. It was kind of like a poor man's Benningers, if you remember what Benningers was like. Uh, that was in the middle of the country, in Kansas, as a matter of fact. Wow. Anyhow, he yeah. liked to do math and despised reading. So I devised a system where he got the right to do math based upon the amount of reading he was doing. And his reading was improving, but then... In this facility, it was a time when they were still doing prefrontal lobotomies and electric shock therapy to treat people. Yeah, remind me, Carl, what, was, what year was that? About 63, 1963, wow. yeah, back then. Still doing that kind of stuff. Wow. They, they told me that I couldn't, I was causing this child too much trauma, so I couldn't uh, keep treating him the way I was. I was in the classroom, his classroom instructor. I, that didn't sit well with me. And simultaneously, I ran into a gal, her name was Crookshank, and her father was a, a, big, a, big, a big deal in MR programs around the country. And she encouraged me to go to CEC, yeah. which was in Toronto that year. We had, students had a budget to go, and so I went. And I ran into this man, Ogden Lindsley. <laughs> I listened to him, and what he said essentially validated what I was doing. He said it was okay. So you went up to him, what, after a presentation? And, I did. And, and talked did. to him? Is I that did. I went up to him and I talked. I said, how could I come and study with you? And he said, well, I'm still in the process of moving to Kansas. I'm not there yet. So I don't know all the ins and outs, but you have to contact the university and uh, see what you can do. So I did. I was so impressed with him that I did. And uh, it took me about a year. I, I uh, finished up my degree and took off for Kansas. So when I got to Kansas, I was a big city kid. 
I grew up with uh, yeah. cars and streets. And I got to Kansas, when I drove to Kansas, I was going to Lawrence, Kansas. When I got in route, I went through a place called Tonganoxy where the corn was six feet tall. Yeah. And I wonder what the hell am I doing here? It's, it's, uh, I'm out in boonies. <laughs> Anyhow, I got there, I, 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 everything was fine. I met Ogden and he was starting to teach classes. And that's how I got to my uh, start with Ogden. And uh, he was quite a character. I enjoyed his uh, teaching and uh, I, was, I got to be yeah. a part, fortunately, of most of the development of precision teaching. And uh, even uh, I was there when I got his name. So that was kind of interesting too. Yeah, so tell us, like, when you first arrived at Kansas, at what state was the chart in? There was none. There was not a, there was not a behavior chart. No chart then. When I got there, we were still yeah. doing, Ock had, Ock took pretty good care of his students. We had our own offices in this building on Eaton Street. Yeah. The little old house that was converted. He had his office, main office, and the students were upstairs. And uh, he had an editor and a graphic artist, and he had a graphic artist who would draw charts for us. We didn't have to draw our own charts. We had somebody to do, but they're all equal interval as a track chart. So the behavior chart hadn't come to pass at that point. Yeah. When I got there, Ogden had been working on CoLab, what he what he called CoLab, Common Language for the Analysis yeah. of Behavior. And he was a real, he was real adamant about precise use of language and describing things. He had difficult times with negative reinforcement and stuff like that because the language didn't, didn't sit with what, the, what what people were trying to describe. And so he had mostly completed that work. And we were, he was uh, trying to, his goal was to apply free operant conditioning to education. As we started uh, down that path, one of the things that from his lab work and, and so forth, he was pretty adamant about frequency as the major measure. We played around with latency and time and task and all that sort of business and discarded them pretty quickly and, and came to the idea that frequency was the key measure, an easy measure, something that education would understand, something they do and are familiar with. So frequency became the primary measure. And then the issue was, uh, you know, he was teaching people how to apply schedules of reinforcement and kind of all the scenarium stuff that he had, he had been taught and had worked with. One of the stories I tell is how the, how the term precision teaching came to pass. We were in his class, his first class, Ed 115, it was, so it was titled Free Operating Conditioning and Education. That was the name of the course. A guy named uh, Richard Whalen, he was a faculty member and he was attending. And afterwards we were standing around and he said to Ogden, well, what you really trying to, promote here is teaching with precision <laughs> and Ogden got that funny little glint in his eye that he sometimes got and paused yeah. and said precision teaching that's how that term came to pass so it was uh I Ogden's idea but stimulated by a comment that Richard Whalen made to him after a class he was real quick at, yeah and I think People know that story. I am very excited that um, listeners of this podcast are going to get a copy of your your story of Presidium Teaching. And um, I sent that to um, a couple of my mentors and they were, you know, they never heard that story. So that's a that's a really awesome thing to remind people yeah. of where that came yep. from. Yep. So as far as, as far as the chart was concerned, we were producing a lot of, we were collecting, producing a lot of data. We were 
Ogden was promoting that, you know, you don't have to have a lab environment to record data. People can do it themselves and teachers can do it, and students can yes. do it. And that's as reliable as other data, maybe not as reliable, but reliable enough to get accomplished the task that we wanted to accomplish. And he was, he got into a lot of arguments and discussions with other professionals of his, on his level about uh, reliability and issues, issues like that. He was looking for a way, he had standardized the language, so he was looking for a way to standardize the display of the, for the data. That was simple, the simple motivation for the chart, the behavior chart. Yeah. And he started off with, he had this black, very black lines, two cycle logarithmic chart from, from the geography people, the seismic world. They would uh, record data in terms of how severe an earthquake was in multiples of 10. And so this uh, semi-log chart was appropriate for them uh, to use. And so he was fussing with that a little bit. And then Harold Kunzelman, who was a student, and he was just, just before he left to go to, with he and Norris Herring left to go to Washington, the state of Washington, he came back from the med school bookstore with three cycle, with a three cycle graph paper that was you know packaged up commercial medical the medical people were using it for whatever purposes they were using it for so it was interesting because we were, i was teaching a class at cru the children's rehab unit at ku med center yeah. and i was using i started using the three cycle chart and one of the things i i would do is i would send the data home with a written description of the parents as a report card I just did that on my own. So I had that on my desk one night. One of the things Colin, one of the things Ogden would do is when he came back from trips, he would always pass through our offices, either to talk or to share or to see what was going on. He, and he did that that night. And I wasn't there. He came back the next day and he said, hey, I saw that three-cycle chart you had on your, on your desk. He said, did you send that home to parents? I said, yeah. He said, what did they say? I said, well, they were pretty happy that the data was, was showing that he was improving. What they say about the logarithmic chart? I said nothing. They can see that the line was going up, and he kind of got one of those little smiles on his face, and, and off he went. So he started. He and he and Eric primarily were the designer of the six cycle uh, chart, our final product, the behavior chart. When did you first meet Eric? When did I first meet Eric? When I first came to Kansas, Eric. Houghton and Ann Warden Warren were Ogden's first graduate students, and uh, yeah. they were in the office there. So I met them as students. They were there about a year, a year and a half while I was there. They were finishing up their doctorate work, and they went off. Right. But that's how I, I met Eric there as a student of Ogden. Yeah. Uh, Eric has quite a interesting history too. Coming prior to coming to study with Ogden, but he and Eric. Eric and Ogden were the primary designers of the chart. They had all kind of versions with black lines and difficult to, the, the early versions were very difficult to use. Finally, they got into the blue ink and all that sort of business. And the logic of it was, it was pretty, pretty straightforward since the range of human behavior was one a day to a thousand a minute. I mean, the, the six cycle was kind of a natural. They went through some iterations before they got there, but it was, they got there pretty quickly. Then the problem was, uh, how do you, once they had a scale up the left that would allow us to pre present the full range of human behavior in a day in terms of number per minute, then the horizontal axis became the uh, next challenge. And we went, they went through several 
And Ogden would have involved several of us to ask questions. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And all that. So the first charts had just five days. They didn't have Saturday and Sunday on them. Uh, then he got the idea that we'd better to do it in real time, uh, have uh, real time yeah. access across the bottom. And then as I, as I mentioned to you in that little document, there are two reasons why there yeah. were 180 days lines on the uh, horizontal axis. One is because in the United States, 20 weeks, calendar weeks, is about a, a school semester. And the second reason was all we could fit on eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and still make it readable. So that was a very practical yeah. reason. But Audrey was a very practical man too. Like how many people would have been using that, you know, that iteration of the chart? Like how many of you were practicing with it and applying your work to it? It, 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 we, it really went from the three cycle to a fairly refined six cycle with the blue ink and all that stuff in yeah. a pretty short order of time. Yeah, so right. there were probably a couple dozen of it. Well, as far as direct students, there were probably eight of us right on site. Yeah. And then and then Ogden would use sort of occasionally use it with some of his class with his class students. I remember him passing out the black yeah. version and having them do some charting on that. And uh, so it, it really wasn't a very it was a very quick development as far as going from starting the, the down the semi-logarithmic path to the final product. It was very quick. Did you have a sense of, at the time, of, you know, what sort of contribution you were making? Well, <laughs> we all had high regard for Ogden. Yeah. One of the things he would do is he would, uh, every once in a while, he would take us off, take us with him on some of his trips. Like, yeah. uh, and there's, that was, there were some good things and bad things about that. And so when you see him in front of an audience of 200 people who are eager for the information and it's new to them, yeah. you get a sense that something something's happening. Yeah. You moved across the country for him and changed your life for him, right? Having met him once. <laughs> One of the things that he would do, and I, this was a good training for most of us, is every once in a while when, he, when you were with him and he was lecturing, he would stop and say to the audience, this is not rocket science. These are simple concepts to understand. Don't be afraid of this funny-looking chart. It's not that difficult. Then he would say, Carl, come up here and finish my lecture. Wow. And so I get up in front of him. I saw the first time I saw him, he did that to Ann Warren. <laughs> that was in front of about 60 people, and Ann got up and did the best she could. So all the rest of us got yeah. very prepared for that eventuality, and it did happen. He did that to all of us. <laughs> right. It was one of those things that he threw you in the fire and expected you to do quite well. And uh, it was good training. I mean, yeah. it was to be able to get up on your feet in front of a large audience and yeah. complete a lecture without notes and stuff was pretty good training. Wow. Pretty good training. Yeah. As far as that was concerned, going with him on these trips, we bought a, a trunk like they used to use on the old trunks on steamships where you would travel and, and we put we would open it up, and put legs on it, and then inside of it we had the chart paper and counters and timers and things like that, so that we would take that with us. And then it was my job; he would often get a booth at these different presentations, like CEC or wherever he was going, and I got the job of manning the booth. So I'd come in with my suitcase, open it up, put it on his legs, and I felt kind of like a huckster. I'm, I'm pushing golf golfing wrist counters and pads and timing different timing devices and all the things that we were trying to yeah. 
get people to start using to be able to time and record frequencies of behavior. So that was a rather interesting experience too, going around the country with him doing that. And you get when you did that, you got to see the impact that he was having, and he was having a pretty major impact. He was uh, a lot of people were interested in what he was doing, and he was such a good speaker. Uh, and Chris, he was really yeah. quite a charismatic man. He was. He, he drew quite a following, so that was almost like a religion, but not. Very funny from my, uh, from my watching of some of his videos. He had a great sense oh, of did. humor. Oh, yes. I remember one time we were in Seattle, up in the, uh, it was a round building in Seattle, hotel, famous hotel, and we were at a um, cocktail party. It was a convention, and he had done some presentations. He said to me, I'll bet you a beer I can empty this room in 60 seconds. It was a song. <laughs> there was a guitar there. So he picked up this guitar and started playing and singing some pretty rank songs. <laughs> and what happened was nobody would make eye contact with him, but they just slowly kind of migrated out of the room. I had to, I had to buy him a beer. <laughs> that bet. But he had a good sense of humor. He was a funny man. And he saw, he saw humor yeah. in a lot of things, too. And he was a pleasure to work with from that point of view because he was always up. Yeah. You know, he was a high-rate guy himself, so yeah. I mean, sometimes yeah. sometimes he was a little bit exhausting, as a matter of fact. If you were around him too long, it was like, whoa, wait a minute, give me a break for just a second. Because yeah. he was going full. I heard accounts from his childhood that he was he was like that as a young boy. Yeah, I imagine so. Yeah. I imagine so. Yeah, yeah. Did you, did you say he was high-rate? High-rate, yes. He, he moved fast. Yeah, like high-rate. He thought fast, too. He, he was very creative, came yeah. up on nice, not good ideas. He was fun, fun to talk yeah. to. And Incredibly optimistic, right? Always optimistic, yeah. And yeah. he would, uh, in terms of social and fun, he would have, at the end of these, in Kansas, drinking age back then was 18, so we were graduate school, in graduate school. So he'd have a keg party every, at the end of each semester for all his students. Got to be pretty, they got to be pretty famous. People wanted to come to them. Because uh, yeah, right. you know, he'd get out his guitar and he'd entertain. And, and uh, they were those kind of events we looked forward to. Yeah. So when you went to Kansas, you started in a master's degree, is that right? I started there at a master's, yes. Yeah, because so there is, I'll, I'll make sure the resources are linked, but of course, carlbindersfluency.org has all of your papers there. So tell us, tell us about your master's degree, because that's, that's where you, I'll talk about your dissertation in a little while, but you made some really interesting discoveries there. Tell us about your master's degree to start with. Well, the whole dissertation, <clears throat> dissertation thing, that was, there's a lot of stories around it, behind that. Yeah. We had been collecting and computerizing data at that point, so we had the behavior bank going. And um, the, the, the real purpose of my dissertation was back then, people were really still fussing with reli reliability and validity of what we were doing. And so we got the idea yeah. that what we would do is take, we, we took, we found as many articles as published articles as we could, and we transcribed that data into our system. So we could compare the published data, the attributes of the published data to the data we were, kind of data we were collecting. And our notion was if we yeah. didn't find many differences, it would say, okay, maybe the data we're collecting is as, and then there was also the issue if you, Og had me go read about reliability and validity and the different kinds of validity and all that concurrent and predictive and all that kind of stuff. And it seemed to, to us that the golden apple for validity was predictive. If you could use your instruments to predict something, 
and in the literature, they talk about it and they try to describe it, but it's pretty hard to find it, to find an example of something that has predictive validity. So part of my effort, part of our effort there was to try to use the data. To, is there anything that we could do to predict the future course of behavior? That was where the title came from. And we got, we did that. We got some, some reasonable success. We could put some numbers on it. It wasn't 100% successful, but we did. I, I think we demonstrated that some predictive validity in terms of taking the data and projecting it into the future. So the, the, the main purpose, and it was interesting because with Ogden, when you wrote a dissertation, he, he was the kind of person that you had to keep revising it until you got it. There were lots of changes. Awesome. So uh, back in that day, we had something called, he had something called rail paper. I don't know if you've heard of rail paper. Rail paper. What he yeah. did was he took typing paper and you put a tape yeah. along the edges. Then you could cut and paste, cut and tape your paragraphs, move them around, rewrite just paragraphs, instead of retyping the whole thing. So it was way before cut and paste was popular. We were, we were cut and taping. Yeah. And it just so <laughs> happened that Ogden had to have an operation. And so he was in a hospital for about 10 days. So I had him as a captive audience when I was finishing my dissertation. And so we just sat there and worked on it and worked on it and worked on it until he was satisfied. I think that would have taken probably four months if he hadn't, if he had been healthy. Yeah. But since he was in a hospital and couldn't go anywhere, he couldn't actually had a captive audience and he didn't have <laughs> anything else to do. So he attended to it and we got it done. Wow. A related story, Nancy Johnson and I yeah. working on our dissertations and we got the idea, videotaping had just started happening. Where you, I think there was like one inch videotape where you could yeah. do a, a 30 minute video. So we got the idea that Maybe instead of writing a dissertation, maybe we should collect our data and do a 30-minute video and then send the video around. So we went to the KU library and we did a, a frequency distribution of how often dissertations had been checked out. And we found that the average was three, the most was nine, and that was a, a master's thesis titled Jesus Christ, Master Teacher, uh, which we were surprised about. The, 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 the whole dissertation at the, in those days, they were put on a shelf and lost for, for eternity, I suppose, is what that message was. So we made a proposal to the Dean of Education that we would videotape, instead of writing, we would videotape our dissertations, and we guaranteed that we would show them to 30 times more people than the average viewer of dissertations in the library. And he said, interesting idea, but no. But we tried. But <laughs> as students of Ogden, we were constantly doing things like that. And Ogden was very supportive. He, he, he would never tell us not to. He, he wouldn't necessarily yeah. encourage us, but he would stand back and watch and see what the outcome was. Yeah. So that was always kind of refreshing because you knew he wasn't going to, he was going to have your back if you needed it. For example, with me, yeah. there was a fellow there named Jim Smith, I think. He was a Peabody picture vocabulary guy. Anyhow, a lot of those, a lot of those other professors, there were jealousies relative to art. There were competition, and so they would pick on us. And one of the things they they called me in when I was about halfway through my program, and they said, "You probably ought to leave the university, go someplace else, because we're going to require five years of teaching before you can get a PhD from our program." And it hasn't been passed yet, but it's coming. So we just wanted to give you a warning. So I went to Ogden, and I said, and they, and they said, also, we're going to stop letting students pick their major advisors. We're going to assign them. 
So I went over to Aubrey. I went back to Aubrey. I said, Aubrey, here's what they told me. And he said, ignore it. It won't happen. So I did. And it didn't. <laughs> but he had to go in and do some stuff about that because Joe Edwards, for example, Joe Edwards was, he applied to the graduate program at KU and he got turned down. He subsequently won a, con a research contest. Research, he submitted a research proposal. Lyndon Johnson had some kind of competition back in those days for the Department of Education. He submitted a proposal and he won and he got like, I don't know, a $5,000 scholarship or something to a university of his choice. And magically, about two weeks later, he was admitted to the KU program. I think he, uh, I think uh, there was a little bit of an embarrassment. So, so things were kind of like that. It was like, Og was taking really good care of us, but at the same time, we were being shot at by traditional folks. And, uh, but it was okay. It was, it all worked out fine. But the environment back then, that was, you know, that was the mid to late sixties. Things were kind of pretty crazy in some places of our country. And SDS was going on. A lot of things were going on back then. It's pretty free time, and it was a, it was an exciting time. We had a I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah, incredible. So tell us because you made a, a pretty profound discovery in your dissertation that's impacted thousands of people since then. Oh, I did. What, what was what was that? Well, that behavior multiplies. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't my discovery necessarily. That was uh, that was uh, we had that down way before the dissertation. Tell us how that came about then. Well, we noticed that as when we started with the six, with the, with the behavior chart, six cycle, things kind of straightened out. You just observe, you just noticed it from from inter, equal interval charts where we were stretching the scales to fit the range of the behavior we were working on, and the whole discussion of the traditional S curve of how behavior changes over time and things of that sort. It just appeared to us that when we, we charted it uh, in a semi-logarithmic fashion, the data was, would, would change kind of in a systematic, straight, linear-looking way. There'd be bounce, of course, but it was generally, you could, you could see it. Yeah. And until it reached some ceiling and plateau and it would level off. Then when we thought about it, it, it made so much sense because when you have straight lines on a semi-logarithmic chart, that means things are changing in equal multiples, not in equal intervals. Yes. And Ogden was big. There's a guy named Smitty Stevens at MIT, I think, who was a st statistician. And he was into big into kinds of measurements, interval measurements and ratio measurements and things of that sort, numbering systems, excuse me. Pretty clear that the uh, charting on that kind of paper showed us that it just visually showed us that behavior generally changed multiples, not, not in equal steps. And this became real obvious. And and, yeah. and and the whole, the thing we liked about, Og was a real symmetry kind of guy. I remember when I came into his class and I asked a question of him. He, he was talking about subsequent events and antecedent events. Events that occurred before behavior, events occur after behavior. And the things that occurred after behavior, after behavior, if they had an impact on the, on the behavior, he called a consequence. And I said, okay, well, what about things that occur before the behavior? What do you call those? And he fooled around with that a little. So he was kind of a symmetry guy. He, everything had to, had to be balanced. So the whole multiply-divide thing, where the whole argument about equal interval world, where 100% increase equals a 50% decrease, I think I make that point a couple of times. 
it's much easier to talk about things doubling and having as a, or dividing by two uh, rather than trying to equate percentage change. Percentage change is just too difficult to work with because it's based upon an interval system, not on a, a ratio system. Like uh, if behavior does in fact change in multiples, a ratio system like the logarithmic scales is a much better way of presenting the data. It just, it just is. It's common sense almost. At least to us it was. Of course, a lot of people thought that, but uh, yeah. that was the case. I think, it's, I think it's been pretty well established that that's a pretty good, pretty good description of how behavior changes. Yeah, behavior and, and other things yep. in life, cells in the body. and Yep, things multiply and things divide. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think that's been such a, a difficult thing to adopt outside of precision teaching? One of the things that people ask yeah. me about is how did, how, does precision, how did precision teaching relate to the other folks that were doing other things and trying to go in different directions and things like that. We never had time to, we never had time to fuss much with that. Yeah. We were all, we were always like, for example, the whole communication business. How can you, how do you sell precision teaching? How do you communicate it? Ock worked very hard on that. He knew he, he knew that yeah. training doctoral students and publication was too, just too slow. And so he got into this whole trainer, a trainer, trainers model. We did that for several years yeah. where we would train groups and during the summertime. He, and, and he had little institutions he would, he would uh, we do it different places around the country, a lot of Kansas City. And then the other thing with the communication was the whole, he didn't publish very much. He kind of gave up on publishing because we were collecting, I mean, when you collect 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 charts, like how do you, it's like publishing a story about that. People are publishing about one chart and he's yeah. got thousands of them so it was a different it was a different magnitude of trying to communicate and so we 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 tried a couple of things that were different uh, i think i mentioned in that little paper the whole behavior grams we tried that uh, yeah can you can you tell us about that yeah one of the stories there was that we were watching other technology because we knew technology was a roadblock for us yeah we had such a difficult time with with uh, even even like with the behavior bank, when we had the data stored electronically, there weren't good database. There wasn't data, good database software to manage it. In terms of terminals, in those days, we put we 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 knew we we need to we needed to get people terminals so they could access the data on their own site. And so we experimented. Hank Pennypacker in the University of Florida, we put a teletype machine in his office, and this teletype machine was state of the art. And let me tell you, it had. Two, two main set of keys, one for lower, 26 for lowercase letters, and another set of 26 for uppercase letters. Didn't even have a shift key. So I mean, that's how old, I and mean, that's, that's where we were in terms of everything was key punch. Yeah. The first computer we worked on had 4K as memory. We were happy when it went to eight, things like that. So the technology, mm -hmm. we're always looking for ways to get around the technology shortage. One of the things that Og noticed, he found out that Montgomery Awards was investigating reading hand, handwriting, uh, their salesman's handwriting, uh, reading that mechanically, trying to optically read what they wrote and, and uh, store it digitally. And so he sent me to a workshop in Chicago where they were working on the forms, input forms for that would help the machines better recognize, increase the accuracy of the character recognition. So I came back from that and we developed a form. It had four, I think it had 200, for 200 characters, and our idea was we would, people would, have, would submit these forms, we would pass them through the scanner, would read them, create a newsletter, and we'd send it out. So we could do this 
we can do it rather quickly instead of, so we're kind of like, we, we tease about it now because it was really our little Twitter system back then. We had limited to 200 yeah. characters. And yeah. So a lot of those ideas Ogden had, you know, himself, yeah. but the technology wasn't there to support it. We did that for, the idea was we got, we're getting the troops out there, but we've got to get them in communication with each other so they know when they make discoveries they can share it quickly and because you just couldn't wait for publication uh, traditional publication so that was one of the ideas of the behaviorgram we, we we published about we did that for about a year or a year and a half we published i don't know how many of those once a month i think right and then we got the idea that yeah. codophones were just coming out then i don't back then and so we got the idea we could speed the process up we would have people call in and record their message on the codophone. We would then put them on a different line. People would call in and hear the hear the uh, uh, the twenty or ten messages, and they would. We were going down that path. We didn't. We didn't go very. We, we we developed the specs for it, but we didn't get it. One of the reasons why we paused was because back in those days, long distance phone calls were quite expensive. It was a way for us to yeah. take the cost away from us and put it on the user. But it was still a cost for the user. Yeah. So that we were afraid that yeah. was going to decelerate because they had to call in, pay a long distance call to call in to record, then pay another long distance call to call in to hear their hear the uh, the reports or the share the shares. This was in the university. Who was transcribing and managing that information? Me and Ogden were doing it. Wow. We were, we had a lot of long days yeah. and stuff, but we would, uh, as far as the uh, sheets were concerned. Uh, we never, the messages were so short, it wasn't much of a problem. 200 character yeah. messages. It's pretty easy to take 30 of them and create a newsletter. That wasn't much difficult. But we were tooling up for the actual scanning process. And we never thought about yeah. something like the internet or different things that we have today. It's yeah. kind of amazing. That imagine, imagine what Og could have done with the technology that exists now. Yeah, I, it would be awesome. I would, uh, it was kind of, in a way, for me, it was sad that we didn't, our ideas were didn't have the technology to, we had the strategies but not the technicals yeah. uh, available the te technology available to really make them work yeah you, you skipped over there a little bit because of the behavior bank because there'd be a lot of people that are listening to this podcast that wouldn't be aware of what that is so can you can you tell us a little bit about how that came about yeah sure Avi would give a lecture he was talking to a group of i think they were parents of autistic kids and some mother asked him the question about what's the best way to do something. And he gave her an answer. Then when we got back to the office, this was locally in Kansas City. When we got back to the office, he yeah. was puzzling. He said, I don't know if I gave her the right answer. So he, and he had been keeping notebooks of charts. And on those charts, he had the frequency and then the, whatever the intervention was described and so forth. And Colab made it possible to keep everything kind of in a standard descriptive uh, system. And so he flung to me, he said, I, I gave her the wrong information, he said. He says, we've got too much data to handle here, so we've got to computerize this. I happen to be standing there. And he said, okay, you're going to computerize this. I've got, I've got part of my research grant, I've got computer time. On, it was on a KU Med Center's computer, and I had to, it was like from 2 in the morning to 4 in the morning, I had to go in through the morgue to go into the, to the computer room to use it. And so we decided, so off we went with Colab. We designed these, we had, you know, the, remember the mark says little testing sheets, number two lead pencil, make a mark between the lines. Well, we spent a lot of time taking the Colab language and putting it in onto those forms. So we just, we created a, a mechanical input 
system. If you take these sheets, if somebody filled them out, run them through a machine, it actually punched the cards that we then ran into, fed into the computer reader, into the readers on the computers. And so we developed this whole system of computerized data. We got all, we got pretty far along with it. We, we computerized uh, over 20,000 behavior change projects in a, in a relatively short period of time, maybe two and a half or three years. Uh, the promise was if you will submit data to the bank, then you could access, the, get information out of the bank. Uh, we figured out how to get the information into the bank. Getting it out of the bank was much more difficult. We couldn't find, we, we found one database called Giant that we thought would do the job, but it was too expensive and it just wouldn't work. And we ended up having to hire programmers. We were programming at, at that time in a language called PL1, which required larger computers, 360, 370 computer with more memory. We'd have to write individual programs to query the data and get the, uh, based upon whatever search criterion the, the user wanted. So it took us a long time, it took us too long to provide answers to questions that people were asking. Uh, there were several people that submitted data and asked. What might be some questions that they ask? Oh, they were asking for ranking of uh, which, if you're talking about reading and you're talking about intervention, what were the largest step-ups? And what were the procedural changes that caused that sort of thing? Uh, what uh, schedule of reinforcement uh, resulted in the highest acceleration of something? Well, there were database questions in rel relative, and um, yeah, there were good questions to start with. Well, we just could we just didn't have the technology to the answers were the the questions were there and the answers were there. We just couldn't get them get them together in a, in a reasonable amount of time. So that eventually ended. We produced a couple of dissertations based upon the data in the behavior bank. Bog's hope was that sometime down the road that people could just subscribe to the service and ask questions and get their answers. That was the goal, but we never made it. Yeah, wow. <laughs> what a goal, imagine that. Imagine how many days. A lot of uh, manpower in that one. It's interesting too about all this, uh, the behavior bank and all these design things. Ogden did them on, did them on his own. He had uh, set up something called Behavior Research Company yeah. And that was the company that was producing the charts. And a lot of his lecture fees would go into that pool. And he paid for all this stuff. Like the behavior bank probably yeah. cost Ogden over $100,000 of his money. Wow. That would be today. That would be, be a lot more. <laughs> and, and what year are we talking about? He didn't, want, he, didn't, he didn't want the university to control it. He wanted to control it. So he paid for it. Yeah, Because, you know, as you start to talk about some of the things he did, traveling around with his students, et cetera, you know, well, yeah, that's expensive stuff, right? He, he was he was uh, knocking down some pretty good lecture fees, though, and, but all the money went, all the money went back yeah. into the research. He didn't uh, take any of it for himself. Wow. I can tell you that. Actually, put some of his own money into it. So yeah. So you've talked a bit about um, the behavior bank, and in the paper that you sent me, that um, very generously you said we can can share that paper. You talked about another system that you were involved in, PT squared. <laughs> <laughs> One of, the, one of the things Ogden was, this is kind of a strategic thing with him. The, the whole precision teaching development of the basic concepts occurred over a relatively short period of time. It wasn't a 10-year project. It was a, a shorter period, much shorter period of time. Than that. And he, he got the tools where he thought they were good enough to use. And he wanted people yeah. to take these tools and apply them to improve education. And what he was finding was that people were messing around with the tools little bitty changes here and there and he was real frustrated about that he said why can't and he he made that point he he a quote from skinner was that uh, he said you know fred told me that when he wrote behavior 
of organisms. The book, he skimmed the cream off the top of free operant conditioning, and he let the rest of them fight over the sour milk. Well, Og didn't want his students messing around with the, fighting over the sour milk. The sour, he wanted them to take those tools and apply them. Yeah. So we made three major attempts to apply precision teaching tools and have an impact. One was the behavior bank. The other was learning screening. Harold and I developed uh, the 10-day uh, learning screening that was published by one of the publishers, didn't sell very much. But the interesting discovery on that whole, we, we, it was a simple concept, three behaviors, one minute time samples over 10 days. Do it in two school. And you'd have two, you have a couple of main, main measures. Performance measure, pick any one, beginning, middle, end. And you had the amount of change, acceleration over the 10 days. Uh, so the learning, we call that a learning measure. Simple concept. Well, we standardized, we, we, we first, we, we took the uh, population of the Tacoma, Tacoma Public Schools and gave that to everybody. So we had that data and there were, in there, there were, what we discovered was uh, there were uh, Hispanics, black population, and white population. Those were the three that we had pretty good numbers on. And we discovered that the white population in terms of performance had a higher performance than the blacks or the Hispanics. When we looked at the acceleration lines, there were no difference between the populations. So as simple-minded as it is, it says that given the opportunity to learn relatively, people will learn relatively at the same rate. It's not ethnic tied or experience tied. It's independent of, of, of that. So one of the things that happened was that there was a fellow named Asa Hilliard. He was a dean of education in San Francisco State, and he was really into bias in academic assessment. Achievement tests were biased, and IQ tests were biased, and that kind of thing. I remember they put us, we, we were in Tacoma at that time, they put us in a room with him and his research people. It was way more difficult than defending a dissertation. We showed him our data, we showed him what we found, and we came out of the room, he said, it's probably the first time we've seen an, instru- uh, an assessment interest, instrument that is not racially biased. And so we were pretty excited about that. So we thought, but, but the problem is it didn't sell very much. And we, we couldn't get it. It was measuring over 10 days. We didn't have the tech. There they weren't iPads that could do the work or any, any of that. It was all done by pencil and paper. So we got the idea that we would use that and we would stack the deck. What we would do, this was a strategic plan. We, we were going to try to convince education that with precision teaching, we could improve achievement scores significantly in a short period of time using large populations yeah. and using standard achievement test measurement. So what, what we did was we found a state, and it was the state of Louisiana, and we, we got a grant from them, and we, we used learning screening on the entire elementary school population of the state of Louisiana. That was our first year. Our second, the plan for it, so we did that. Clay Starlin was involved with that. He, he came and helped us, and yeah. uh, Harold, Harold yeah. it was a pretty big project. Our goal was the second year, what we're going to do is we're going to take our data, our learning screening data, and identify kids who had low performance but high learning over the 10 days. We were going to tutor them with precision teaching. We called it, I called it, we never, that term never caught, caught on, PT squared. We were, there going to be, it was going to be tutorial sessions using the whole PD paradigm, a precision teaching paradigm uh, for a year, and then we would do pre and post achievement test scores and show the academic world how these wonderful, how their wonderful scores changed. Mm-hmm. And we, we were pretty sure we could do it because we could identify the kids who, given the chance, 
would end up becoming being high performers, and that's what the achievement test measures. So we thought we had it rigged. The problem was the grant was not funded the second year, so we missed out on that golden mm -hmm. opportunity. That one would have been a fun one. And we were trying to apply the tools on a strategic grand level to convince people. I think if we had accomplished that one, we might have made major inroads into more major inroads into education in the United States. Because if we could have shown that we could improve with this one year of this little tutorial kinds of thing, not very much time, could improve significantly achievement test scores, I think we would have had a big sale. But we didn't get the opportunity to do it. And again, had technology been further advanced, it, it would have presumably made that a lot easier and reduced the cost yeah. of doing that yeah. too, right? It's pretty costly. Yeah. And uh, it was a lot of work. We thought big. I mean, we didn't scrimp. We, we went after yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, but politics in that state changed and they didn't fund it for the second year. So we didn't get to test it. That's, that's about the time that I... Uh, decided to move on after after that one. Yeah. What, what year was that project? Sometime in the mid-70s. I'd have to go back and check. Yeah. 74, yeah. 75 maybe. I'm just guessing right now. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. And somewhere along the way, though, you produced a book on charting with Hank Pennypacker and, and Og. How, how did that come about? Oh, Hank was just interested in doing that. And he, he took the lead on it. And Og said, go for it. Yeah. So Hank, Hank did most. You're a busy guy back then. We yeah. <laughs> How are you making money as a student to sustain this lifestyle? For 14 years, I, I, I had uh, canned, let's see, I, I liked canned peas. <laughs> wow. I slept, I had a one-room bedroom rental, so we didn't have much. It wasn't, that wasn't, the living part of it was, it was all precision teaching. It wasn't, the lifestyle was just precision teaching, eating and sleeping. It wasn't much else. So the, the yeah. sleeping, where you slept wasn't all that. As long as it was clean, it was okay. And what you ate probably affects me now, but uh, didn't back then. It wasn't, uh, wasn't that critical. Ogden, as far yeah, as some of the years, Ogden paid me some salary, modest, very modest. That's part yeah. of, his, of his commitment. So, so I, could, I could work on the behavior bank and stuff like that, but it wasn't very much. Uh, once the scholarships, once I finished the PhD work, we were on our, I was on my own after that. So, What did Og say to you when you said, you know, I've, I've decided to move on from precision teaching. At that time, that was like in the late, that was in 1980, 81-ish, in that time frame. Yeah. And he was leaving, the process of leaving the university and had his own health yeah. concerns and stuff like that. We never, never really discussed it very much. It just happened. Yeah. He always, every time yeah, I saw him, he always said to me, he said, you know, it's not too late to make good science. You know, Carl, yeah. it's not too late to make good science. <laughs> you got to love him. He stayed with it. Right to the end, he stayed yeah. as much as he could. Did you see him towards the end? Yeah, I went and visited him about two days before he passed away. I went to visit him. He was in KU Med Center, and uh, we chatted. And this is probably a good story to end on, I suppose. Whenever I got with Aug, we had instant rapport. It was just you could ask anything. There was no limits. Yeah. So I asked him what he thought about you know afterlife and what comes next. And because uh, he knew he was dying, I think. Yeah. He said, he smiled again. He said, well, he said, you know, I asked Skinner that question. He, said, he didn't say Skinner. He said, I asked Fred that question. I said, you did? He says, yeah. He said, he said Let me t I'll tell you what he said. Fred said, no, but I got a story for you. He said, when I was a young boy, my dad was a pretty religious guy, and, and he was diminishing. He was getting ill, and uh, he knew he was going to move on. He knew he was going to pass away, and, but he said he would take care of me. This is all talking about his dad's going to take care of him from the afterlife. 
And so they discussed about ways of communicating, uh, how his father could communicate with him after he, he died. And since Odd was a, 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 a scout and a Boy Scout, his father was heavily involved in that too. They decided that smoke signals would be the best way to communicate. Well, Odd, did you ever see any smoke signals? He says, no, he says, I've got a lot of zeros across the bottom of that chart. So I guess I have to say that my answer to that question is also no. And you got to admire a man that yeah. is database right to the end. It's <laughs> right to the end. I guess you expected that might have been the last time you'd see him. It was. Yeah. Next time I saw him, he was ashes in a. We used to have uh, for the behavior chart. We had a box that would hold uh, ten rings. So the last time I saw him, his ash, Nancy had she contacted me and asked me what I thought about that putting his ashes in the behavior chart box. <laughs> and I thought that he would think it was a hoop. So she did. So I had his little they had a little reception at KU for him. Yeah, they brought his act. Hank Pennypatrick came and sang one of the songs that Hogg had written about his university life. Then the Boy Scout honor guard brought him in in this box, his ashes, and set it on the table. So that's the last time I saw any part of Hogg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's been no smoke, no signs that Hogg is uh, talking. Oh no, no, no! I haven't. I think about him a lot. Uh, yeah, I bet. No, no. That was thirty years ago. Yeah. You said it was kind of 14 years of your life, but it was was like a lot more than that. You threw a lot of decades into those 14 years. It was a lifetime in itself, yeah. Yeah, and you invested a lot of your life and, and, and sacrificed a lot for that time. I would do it again. You would do it again. I was going to ask you if there were any regrets. I would do it again. <laughs> you work in the computer world now. Is that right? I did. Yeah. Are you still working? No, I retired. Uh, uh... You retired now. So like, oh, what am I? I'm 78 now. I'll be 79 pretty soon here. So I retired when I was 59. Yes. Wow. I've been retired for quite a while now. Yeah, right. I, I'll, I'll give you a little hint if some of your readers, I, I don't know what, uh, yeah. one of the things I was able to do with the chart in terms of investing, help me invest in the stock market. I, I was able to do a couple of wins there. I discovered that really? I couldn't, I couldn't identify lows, but the stock market, like the Dow Jones and the different indexes, they're really measures of human behavior. It's paramutual betting. So you're betting against other people, and that's other people's behavior. So I was able to figure out when the market was going down, if it was going to continue. And I was able to, yeah, right. on three occasions, do quite well. Now, I, I missed on one, but three out of four ain't bad. Wow. And so I learned to uh, yeah, it's pretty buy when other people were selling. So I, I I don't have to eat peas out of cans anymore as a result. So it, it, what goes around comes around. It helps. So yeah, that's a that's a so great. Current, currently, I, I, a, I am married. I have a, my wife's name is Connie Sanders, and she uh, yeah. is a lovely lady, and uh, we have a nice relationship. It's very positive. We live together yeah. in a retirement community. Uh, we're at a place where they have um, it's independent living but they have uh, high-class yeah. restaurants and they have a memory care unit and uh, assisted living unit and nursing care unit. So as we dwindle, we will have a place to go. So we have that all taken care of. I have never lived in a big city. So we live, we live on, the, on, on the beach yeah. here, but we're about two miles from downtown. Yeah, nice. Sarasota is a nice city. We, uh, they have a trolley that runs by our place and you can take it downtown, it's free. So we go down and have dinner and drinks every once in a while. And uh, 
we have a very nice, comfortable lifestyle. So uh, I know one of the questions you you asked me was, what do I think about the future of precision teaching? And I, yeah. I watched what's going on in, in politics, like in Florida and the news today about the repealing of Roe versus Wade and that sort of business. Pretty discouraging. But I think in the long run, the truth and the data will, I, I think it'll win. I got to believe it'll win. Yeah. And I think I think we can make education more scientific. If I were a young man today, I, what I would be doing is probably I could see myself developing software for iPads and desktops, where uh, for homeschool programs, for example, that would all be database with algorithms that would, based upon the kids' behavior, adjust the curriculum accordingly and to maximize with the uh, maximize the outcome in terms of acceleration and, and things of that sort. I think. I think that's a real doable kind. I don't know if I, there are maybe people doing that. I hope so. Yeah. But that's one of the things I'd be doing, yeah. um, I think. I think so. If um, anybody wants to go back and, and listen to Kimberly Barron and say, I think that's her hope and her dream and, and her team. Uh, I'm sure there's others as well, but um, I'm inspired by her stand in, in education and, and her long-term goal for um, extracting data large scale. Do you see a time where you know, kids can walk into a classroom and have, you know, individualized programming for them. And Oh, sure. I don't think they'll walk into a classroom anymore, though. I think yeah, classrooms will be right. gone. Yeah. I think it'll be individual, individualized instruction finally with a teacher yes. and their laptop and the child, and they'll go off and work on their own, and the, the machine can manage their education probably as good as or better than, for example, let's face it, I, you know, I drive a Tesla right now, and the car, yeah. the car does a better job of keeping me in the lane than I can. So that's just a fact. Yes. Accept the fact that the technology is improving and improving and improving, and it's better than sometimes we can do. So I think that's probably for education and individualization. I think the technology will do that. Yeah. I guess you take some satisfaction that when that happens, not if it happens, but when it happens that you know, education gets to the point where a student can log on an iPad and be learning wherever they are, mm -hmm. you know, with a program individualized to them that you contributed to that process. Does that, does that ever factor into your thinking? Ah, it would be nice to think that. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, I want you to know that there's one lady in Australia that is incredibly grateful for that 14 years that you put in. And um, yeah, I get very emotional when I say that because the work that I do on a day-to-day -day basis with my own daughter, who's had the most profound response from precision teaching. She has severe autism and without that work that you undertook and your contribution, you know, she wouldn't be where she is at age 18 and probably one day going to live independently and, and she has a job. And that would never have been possible without the use of the chart. I know that. Um, I want you to know that you've affected me directly and I'm very emotional by the paper that you've read and I'm very grateful for that stand. And I only know a little bit about what you put in, but you sacrificed a lot to, for for many of us and and I just couldn't be more privileged to have interviewed you and I'm just always amazed by the people that I interview that are in their 70s and they just to me are like younger than me <laughs> and so so able to draw upon dates and facts and uh, you know things that occurred and I'm just so feel so privileged to have interviewed you thank you so much I enjoyed I enjoyed it Mandy thank you for approaching me yeah I'm so happy that you're living a, a comfortable life and enjoying Florida and I, I really hope I can meet you one day okay <laughs> bless you Carl thank you so much for your time today Bye bye. well 
that was Dr. Carl Koenig. I hope you enjoyed listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking to him. It was a great honour to bring it to you. You'll find Carl's Publishings on the fluency.org website and there is a link in the show notes to all of those along with a link to the handbook and a copy of his mini biography. I look forward to catching up with you again in episode 11 of the ABA and PTA podcast to launch in early June.